And may God bless us now as we open his word and take a little bit of time here this morning. But we do want to be in the word together. I want to begin, if we could, with Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. We read this a few weeks back. Thus God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. It's pretty much common to our experience that if we come to those places in life where our ease, our comfort, maybe even our health seem endangered, we can begin to question God's work in our life, God's faithfulness in our life, whether or not I ought to continue to trust Him. My dear and precious lifelong friend Bill Gast, uh, who actually put us in touch with you, He's been serving faithfully in West Haven, Connecticut, in an evangelical free church there recently as a result of bladder cancer, had his bladder removed. And uh, the first four weeks after the surgery, he was in excruciating pain, and I spoke with him a little bit about that. And he said, uh, he said, you know, he said, you begin to see things differently when you're praying for that great deliverance and it doesn't come. And he referenced one particular Christian-type plaque that they have in their home about God's faithfulness in certain situations. He said, and I'd look at that plaque and I'd say, that's a lie. I believed it before until getting into this situation where it tests everything that you've got when you're in excruciating pain for four weeks straight. That's what we're like. We're not sure. See, it's easy to trust God in the easy times. That's fine. Yeah, oh yeah, God's good. God's blessing me. It's when the difficulties come. The writer to Hebrews is addressing some people who apparently have some things that are stressing them to the point they're considering turning away from this thing called the Christian faith. And we have seen repeatedly in the early chapters these what I call cautionary statements where he's urging them, no, don't turn around and go back. What you need to do is press in. Press into what God is doing. Do not abandon the significance of what we have in Jesus Christ. Hold on, he's saying. Push through at all costs. Do not give up your faith. And in Hebrews Chapter beginning the second part of chapter 6, right on through to the first half of chapter 10, which really then is for four chapters. I find it interesting structurally that whereas he kept weaving in and out these cautionary statements for four effective chapters, they're gone. Because he's going to focus on one thing. Having told us, now they'll come back, but having told us we ought to make sure we see this thing through to the end, he then begins to explain why. Why our confidence can hold strong regardless of the conditions around us. And as we saw 
that God has prepared for us this great hope that is ours. It's an anchor to which we can hold. Sometimes we lose the grip on that anchor. But how do we know the anchor itself will hold? How do we know what we're, what we're hanging on to is sustainable? And as we read to begin, we just reminded of ourselves that God wants to show us and wants to reveal to us that His counsel of bringing us to a good place has not been changed. And that the anchor that He has set forth that is a sure hope for our soul will hold true. And in order to make it clear to us God gave us an oath, and within the context of that oath, where he can only swear by himself because there's nothing greater upon which to swear than God can give the oath upon himself, within that oath there are two immutable things, two things that cannot change, that will not change. And for four chapters, he just keeps working this topic around in our thinking. And it brought us last week to Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. Now we got that far last week, and we looked at it, and we, one of the comments we tried to make is this only makes sense if indeed Jesus Christ was historically resurrected from the grave, bodily resurrected. Because without the resurrection, we have no idea, no means of confirmation that he actually is the minister of something in the heavens. So that's what we concentrated on for Resurrection Sunday. But we want to move on a little bit today. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. What we noted in the two immutable things that are set forth, that we're now we're just swirling around with them, if you will is that in his oath, in establishing Christ as a priest forever, according uh, to the order of Melchizedek, that he set up a better priesthood and a better covenant. That is where our anchor holds. Now, as he discusses this, we come up with this deeper understanding or further understanding, and that is, first of all, Christ is the minister of the true tabernacle. He's the minister of the true tabernacle. What do we mean by that? Well, if we get into the Old Testament, he makes reference here to the tabernacle that Moses built. What we find out that in Exodus, and you can, look, you can read this. If you're unfamiliar with what we're saying, I encourage you, jot down Exodus 25, read to the end of the book of Exodus, and you'll understand about the tabernacle because it'll walk you through it twice. But Moses was given instructions on how to build this tabernacle while the people were in the wilderness. They've been delivered from Egypt, and God said that they were to build a tabernacle that he might dwell among them in verse 8. 
of Exodus 25. That was the point. God was going to make himself known in this tabernacle. And he told Moses, be very careful that you follow the plans that I'm giving you. So to the people, the Hebrews, they understand when we talk about the tabernacle of Moses, they understand this tent-like structure was a very real thing that they had. And we will look at it in details when the clock allows us an opportunity to do that. But if you'll take it by faith for now that the tabernacle was a tent a place of meeting, a place of worship that they could pick up and move because they've just left Egypt and they still got to get to the promised land. So in order to take this with them, it can be you know, only in a tent form. So this tabernacle, Moses understood, followed on what he saw of the pattern of that which was in the heavens. And he was to follow it Exactly. He said the role of the priests, in verse 3, the role of the priests is to offer gifts and sacrifices. That's what they do. If they're not offering gifts and sacrifices, why do you have them? See, they're this intermediary personage who takes the offerings of the people and they bring it into the presence of God because the people themselves are not able to do that because of the unholiness and sinfulness of the people. But God calls these priests to carry out this particular role. They've got to deal with their own unholiness and sinfulness before they can do it on behalf of the people. But that's what priests do. That's what the high priest does. He says, therefore, it's necessary also that Christ have something to offer. He says, if he was on earth, verse 4, he wouldn't be a priest. Since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law. What does that mean? Well, we saw before, we've looked at it, that he is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And in the previous chapter, the writer to the Hebrews was, was real clear that the Levites are the ones who are to carry out all of these ministrations. And Jesus is not from the tribe of Levi. It says he's from the tribe of Judah. And so he doesn't meet the requirement of the law that says the priests have to come from the Levites. So he wouldn't be offering his offerings within that system because he doesn't meet the requirements that the law commands. So he's of a different priesthood, the priesthood of Melchizedek, a priesthood that the writer says was not based upon any limitations because Christ was not going to be defeated by death. He's an ever-living priest. So he doesn't meet the requirements to work within this tabernacle on earth Okay, And those who work in this tabernacle, notice verse 5, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. So here's what we need to get in our thinking, friends. Very real to the Israelite nation as they left Egypt, they had a physical structure built called the tabernacle. And they carried it with them, and God met with them there, and he revealed himself to them there at, in the tabernacle. That tabernacle was, placed, was based upon, its structure was based upon a pattern of something in the heavenlies. The tabernacle, which earlier 
In verse 1 and verse 2, it says that he is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. So now we're talking two different tabernacles, one on earth, one in heaven. The one on earth follows the pattern of the one in heaven. The one on earth is not the true tabernacle. It is simply a, call it a replica, call it a mock-up. Here it refers to it as a shadow, a type, of what the actual reality is of the tabernacle in which Christ ministers in the heavens. How many of you guys, and maybe some of you ladies, have seen the hole in the horned deer? Have you seen him? Do you know what I'm talking about? Any of you, the hole in the horned deer? Raise your hand if you at least know what I'm talking about. You're at least aware of what I'm talking about. Okay. Now, Have you seen the deer or have you seen the replica? The replica, okay? There's this massive rack that's referred to and known among guys who pay attention to racks. It's huge, called the hole in the horn deer, and it looks like it's got a 22 round that went through uh, a drop tine that's got a flat spot on it. Boom, right through it, right? You watch, you look at this, you go, this is absolutely amazing that any deer ever really carried this around. Okay, until, of course, you see the porter whitetails, and then you realize, well, yeah, they got bigger stuff than the hole in the horn deer. Okay, that's how that is. But uh, you're impressed until you're aware of the porter whitetails. But all we have seen, we're all saying we never really saw the deer. The, we saw the mock-up, which is really impressive. They do such great detail with it in, in, in molding it and painting it and coloring it. And then the mount that I've seen was on a full-body mount, uh, and it was just gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous. But I can't say I saw the hole in the horned deer. I saw the mock-up, the pattern, the type that was made after the real thing. Are you following me? All that Moses offered to the people was the mock-up. And it was close. And it looked like that. But in reality, it was not that. And what the writer of the Hebrews is saying is although this was good, the priesthood that Jesus had in the real tabernacle made without hands is far superior because the first of the two immutable things is that he has an unchanging priesthood. That priesthood, where he serves, Christ is the minister of the true tabernacle That's partly what sets his priesthood apart. He's not just another dead sinner who's going to die, be lost. Somebody's got to replace him, bring in a new Levite, okay? Because this guy died. No. He's of a different tabernacle, one in the heavenlies, where he does not die. When he's completed his work, he sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And that's why it becomes unchangeable. That's why it's immutable, and that's why it's one of those two things that becomes the anchor of our soul, and it will hold, the writer to the Hebrews is saying. My friends, we all, at times, every last one of us, are going to go through some deep water. It is the nature of this world in which we live. In fact, I, 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 we won't do it, but... I'm willing to bet there's very few of us in here who, who can say, I haven't gone through it yet. 
because we have experienced the pain, the, heart at, the heartache, the, uh, the stress, the sleepless nights, the confusion. Why, why, where are you, God? Where are you in all of this? This is nothing new to us. This is not like we're the first ones to experience this. This is why the writer to the Hebrews is saying to them, look, it is difficult. There are some hard things you're going through right now, but that is not reason enough to abandon anything in terms of your faith because we have the only true thing that is here. And that, that's kind of where I'd like us to, to, to go with some thoughts this morning, friends. Two things. One, I want to affirm to us that the Word of God can be trusted I particularly want to say this to those of you who are going to be in college shortly or you're in college now. One of the arguments that um, one of the arguments has been set forth, and it's a straw man, is an argument that says, yeah, well, there's something inconsistent because who who is God really? Because in the Old Testament, you got this mean God who does all these terrible things. And in the New Testament, you got this loving, gracious God. Who is he really? It's a straw man. And the tabernacle tells us it's a straw man. Because the, the, the concept of the tabernacle created by or, or built by Moses according to the pattern that was in the heavenlies, that's the Old Testament where it was built by this pattern. And in the New Testament, we have revealed for us what is in the heavenlies. They hold together as one. The problem is not whether the God of the Old Testament is an angry God as opposed to the God of the New Testament who is a loving God. That's not the problem. The problem is us being able to think through carefully and clearly enough and giving it enough time to understand and study Scripture to understand the unity that is in all of this and that it's the same God over each of the tabernacles. That the God who met with Moses at the mercy seat or with the, the Israelites at the mercy seat is the same God who upon whom Jesus' right hand, right hand is seated. Okay, so that's the number one. Because as the evil one tries to tear us away in this spiritual battle for our very souls, as he tries to knock us away, that's one of the things he's going to say. You can't really know who God is. Yes, we can. And he's revealing himself in both of these. There's not an inconsistency. So reject that argument. That's the first thing I want us to draw from this. The second thing is just this. Remember? This, this tabernacle that Moses made is merely a shadow, a type, a mock-up of the real tabernacle in the heavenlies. This one is the one that's called the true tabernacle. Is it possible, friends, is it possible that we need to think through a little bit differently about our very existence in this world See, we cling. We began by asking, you know, when our comfort, our health, our ease gets, gets challenged in this world, we begin to wonder where God is in all of it. And is it possible, friends, that we put too much stock in this world and what we see? The tabernacle we could see was simply a type. The true tabernacle is in heaven. And is it possible that although our existence here is real, our existence here is not our ultimate existence. There's something better that is the true waiting for us in heaven. If we will see this thing through and make sure that we hold tight to Jesus Christ. 
Is it possible that what we have here, it's actual. I see you guys. Okay, you see me. We can shake hands at the end of the service. It's actual what we experience, but it's not final. There is something more, something truer, something more real that awaits us when we get to glory. Is it possible that what we have is present? It's here, it's now, but it's not eternal. And that isn't going to last. Just like those priests didn't last. They had to keep replacing him until we get into the presence of Jesus Christ and he transforms us into what we really are and what we're really meant to be. This passage challenges to me my whole perception of reality. Remember when Jesus told Peter that he was going to die and Peter said, you're not going to die. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. See, because we want to cling to this world as if it's got to be about this and what I can see and touch and feel around me. Is it possible that God says there's a much greater, truer reality that I'm preparing for you? Jesus said, in my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. That's where we're going to enter into the real Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, we see now in a mirror darkly. We don't have clear vision on things right now, friends. But then, face to face, we're going to see it. And we're going to understand it. We're going to enter into something that is far more real and far more solid and far more eternal and unchanging than we're ever going to experience here And could it be that rather than thinking, Lord, if you're not helping me cling to what is here, could it be God would want to transform our thinking to say, Lord, for whatever this is, it is, and I thank you for it on a daily basis. But Father, give me a heart of trust that I remain anchored to you, that Jesus Christ alone is what I hold to because I know the real thing still awaits me. That's the anchor. That's my hope that I cling to to Jesus. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, in which enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Caroline saying, when I come to die, nothing of this world Give me Jesus. Because, friends, that's all. That's all we will ever need. And there's nothing in this world we can take with us. We cling to this so firmly. But there is so much more. And it's all found in him. I simply ask today, do you know him? Do you know him in a personal way? Have you met him yet? Thank you, Caroline. Appreciate your helping us focus on this magnificent thought. Father, thank you for this time here today. We've been reminded, Lord, there's so much more to our existence and our purposes 
and our realities than what we will ever see in this world. May we cling to the anchor of our soul, our high priest Jesus, who is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He ever lives on our behalf. He sits now and he's an intermediary for us presently, Father. May we cling to him regardless of life circumstances. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.